Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is David Watson, or Dave, or actually, I answer to a lot of different things. Um, and I, I'm, I'm new here to the church. I've been here uh, uh, just over a month, and my job is I'm the pastor of other duties as assigned. So um, we call that executive pastor here, but uh, that means that actually I think this week I get installed a big board on the wall in my office where Adam just comes in and writes down, hey, do this stuff. Okay, buddy, no problem. Um, but Adam has given me the, the, the chance to speak to you guys this morning, and, I, and I'm, I'm thrilled to do that. Um, and uh, we'll give you a little background from me coming into this and how I read this text. I think it might be helpful for you. Um, I've been in ministry since uh, 2000, serving churches mostly in the, in the Atlanta area. I'm from Birmingham, so this is, uh, this is, uh, this is coming back home for, uh, for me, and my wife is from Birmingham as well. Uh, so coming back home for us uh, eventually, it's a big transition. But um, uh, I've also been, over the last seven years, uh, bivocational as a, as a church planner and uh, also teaching uh, high school classes, uh, which are very different things. Uh, and I taught, uh, I taught courses in uh, church history uh, and um, Christian theology, Christian doctrine, world religion kinds of stuff. And so it, it, those, those things were formative for me as I was teaching them uh, and uh, teaching uh, juniors in high school uh, Christian doctrine, uh, the Christian theology, they're, they're, uh, it was, was put in me uh, the Lord spoke into my heart the need for us to view the world that we live in through the lens of his truth, through the lens of his scripture, and uh, that it was really important for us to make sure that our, that our doctrine was sound. Uh, and so we, I spent a lot of time with my students walking through the scriptures, identifying the core doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, showing them where we find those truths in scripture and helping them put those into uh, the uh, pieces of a parameter for a biblical worldview. In the history course, uh, we covered, uh, uh, the one that I taught covered uh, history from the founding of Rome, about 600 B.C., uh, through the beginning of the church, all the way up to the Protestant Reformation, which is about 2,200 years of history. And when, what you notice when you look at history is that um, there, there are a lot of tendencies in human nature that we watch play out over and over again in the centuries of history. My preaching professor, um, when, I, when, I was in, uh, when I was in seminary uh, the first time, uh, told me one time, uh, we don't live in the 21st century, we live in the first century for the 21st time because man doesn't change. We find ourselves making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Go just take get you a, or I can recommend a book for you, and just take a quick trip through church history, and you'll see leaders of, of uh, leaders of empires and countries, leaders of the church making uh, the same the same stumbles over and over again, paying the same consequences over and over again. Um, and so, what I want to talk to us about today is that when when we see those things identified in human history, what does God also show us about him over and over again in human history? And so I'm calling this sermon the gospel that we preach because I think 
uh, what he does show us over and over again in our history is that he is faithful, much like we sung about this morning. So that was actually great. I didn't even tell Hayes I was talking about that. That was go Jesus. Uh, so uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today. And while you're turning there, Ephesians chapter 2, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of history of, uh, of the city of Ephesus. Uh, Paul is writing to the church uh, in Ephesus and some churches around the city of Ephesus. A lot of commentators believe that the city of Ephesus was kind of a little bit like the city of Atlanta, right? Like, you, uh, at, you know, kind of like Georgia is the capital of Atlanta, right? Atlanta just sprawls all over the southeast kind of a thing. So, like, hey, I'm from Atlanta. You live an hour outside the perimeter. How are you from Atlanta, right? Well, Ephesus is the same way. Ephesus' uh, influence, Ephesus' culture spread as much as they can determine uh, up to 30 miles outside the city limits. So Paul is actually writing to regions of churches. Um, and uh, Ephesus was a cultural center for the worship of Artemis, um, and the, the god Artemis. And also uh, they, they had been granted uh, property in Ephesus for the worship of Caesar and uh, for, the, uh, for the goddess Roma and for uh, a cult centered around the, the Roman emperor um, uh, Domitian and uh, Diocletian. And so they're just sort of collecting all of this stuff to worship spiritually, politically, culturally. They were, they, uh, Ephesus was also a significant um, trade, uh, trade hub. And so all these cultures from all over the world would come to Ephesus to trade, and they brought in their beliefs, their cultures. And it's, those, it's, it's, it's really this sort, of, um, uh, th- just sort of this casserole of paganism. And they just built this big, this big theater that, hold, that held kind of like an, uh, an open-air uh, open amphitheater that holds like 20,000 people. Um, and so this is where they would all gather to worship the god Artemis. And after they got finished worshiping the god Artemis in the amphitheater, they would walk north up this street. Like, I mean, like, yeah, like, you can see a street out of this, I know. But, but they're going to walk north up this street, and they're going to go all the way up the street. And when they get to the top of the street, they're going to they're gonna make, a, they're gonna make a, a sharp turn to go toward the, temper, uh, the temple for Artemis for worship. So it's like this big processional parade thing. Uh, shouting the praise of Artemis all the way up to this sharp turn and then they go toward and right here is where the church was. So right outside the, 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 the front door as it were of the gathering place of the Christians in Ephesus to whom Paul is writing daily they would have this massive processional of pagan worship uh, processing up to their front door and then walking away from them, parading away from them. And they're just seeing all these people, all these people. And you can imagine if you're in that situation and you're thinking, are are we in this, is our little gathering in this city by ourselves? I mean, is 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 there anything here like us? And Paul begins to write to them about the idea of the supremacy of Christ, of the greatness of the gospel, of the truth of who he is to remind them that he who has called you is over all things. 
And so he begins to speak to them the truth of this gospel. And we're going to begin in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 because I think in Ephesians chapter 2, not only do we see the narrative of the gospel in the Ephesians, but we also find our place in the narrative of the gospel that Christ is speaking into our lives. So if that's true, where does our story begin? Well, our story begins actually a little bit before the book of Ephesians. Our story begins in a garden in Genesis chapter 1. You've read this before, I'm sure, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, or maybe just hundreds. I don't know your life. So um, you, you've read it before. You know what happens. God speaks all things into existence. God speaks all things into creation. And after he's created trees and mountains and rivers and oceans and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, he creates man. But man is different because man is the only creature that God made in his likeness, in his image. And the reason he did that is so that man would carry the sovereignty of God, the proclamation of the sovereign creator to all of his creation. So in, in, uh, in uh, centuries past, kings would, uh, would mark their territory um, by setting up statues of themselves around the perimeter of it. As far out as their statues would go, so went their sovereignty. Or we, you'd also uh, see lots of times when new Roman emperors would come into power that the old coinage, the old currency, would go, uh, would go out of value and they would print their own coins with their own likeness because wherever their likeness went, so went their sovereignty. Same idea here. Be fruitful and multiply is God saying to man, Go and spread my sovereignty throughout creation because it's all mine. Sermon for another day, but I would actually suggest to you that the New Testament version of that is go and make disciples. Because I'm still sovereign. That's a sermon for another day. Somebody write that down and I'll do that one next time. All right, so here we go. Uh, so our, our narrative begins here. God has made us in his likeness. Uh, we announce the boundaries of his sovereignty. It's not good for man to be, alone, uh, to be alone. Now we have Eve. Things are going great. And then something changed. It's kind of the way it goes in narratives, right? In history and all sorts of narratives, when we tell story, we, have our, we, we are introduced to the characters, right? We're introduced uh, to, to the main characters, and then something changes. We have, we have conflict. In just three chapters into the Bible, we find our conflict. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent comes to them and says, all that God has told you, obviously I'm summarizing here, all that God has told you, he has told you to keep you from becoming like him. He is not blessing you, he's withholding from you, he doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to to be like him, and so he's keeping things from you. That's why he's told you not to eat from this tree. But I tell you, you won't surely die. What you will do is that you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You know, really, the, the back half of that statement's a little bit irrelevant, right? Because they stopped listening that you will become like God. Wh whatever the rest of that sentence is, is just gravy. You're going to become like God. 
It's the same temptation that Satan fell for. And they took it. And one of the most, one of the most, maybe the most heartbreaking chapters in the Bible. We see Adam and Eve choose rebellion. We see Adam and Eve choose disobedience. And you go back and read, I don't know if you do this, but if you go back and read through your Bible, every time I get to Genesis chapter 3, I'm like, please choose differently. My wife makes fun of me all the time because, you know, I've got this, well, I mean, um, lots of reasons. But um, I, I've got, like, these same movies that I watch over and over and over again. And so, you know, she'll walk into the living room while I'm, you know, while I'm watching Tombstone for the 94th time. Tombstone, anybody? <laughs> yeah, I'm a people. All right, so, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm watching it, and, and she, she'll walk in and she'll go, mm-hmm. it's going to end differently this time. It might. You don't know. It doesn't. Um, but, you know, I read Genesis 3, and every time I read Genesis 3, I'm like, mm, decide differently. But every time they eat, it wasn't an apple, might have been an orange, could have been a pi- pineapple. Nobody knows, doesn't matter. The motivation is the issue. They want to be, they, they're not content to be God's ambassadors. They're not content to be God's image bearers. They're not content to be markers of God's sovereignty. They want to be gods. And in that same chapter, at the end of the chapter, God pronounces their punishment for their disobedience, and then he removes them from the garden. Something else happens first. He makes them a promise that there is one coming. It's the first time we see a hint of the gospel. That God makes them a promise that there is one coming, a seed of woman, who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So there's a promise out there. And we don't know what it is in Genesis, right? That's just good literature. There, there's something there, and we don't know. We're not going to find it out until way back farther in the book. We're going to have to read the whole book, right? Um, but there's a promise. And after he makes them a promise, um, we, see, we see the fallout for what's happened. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 uh, through 24. We see this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let, uh, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. Do you get the heartbreak here? They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But also in the garden is the tree of eternal life. We were meant for eternity. We were meant to be in relationship, in fellowship. We were meant to be his forever. But they chose the other tree. And God said, okay, look, fellowship is broken. They've rebelled. They've been disobedient. My holiness cannot tolerate their sinfulness. But there will be a day when I will draw them back to me. So they can't eat of the tree of life and live forever in disobedience. It's mercy. God doesn't kick them out of the garden for punishment. He kicks them out of the garden for mercy. 
so that one day, sin will die. And on that day, he will raise his people again to be what they should have been all along. But in this life that we live, in, the, in the, every day that you wake up and, and, and take breath and God's mercies are new every morning, we find ourselves in this struggle of the already and the not yet, right? God has already spoken redemption into our story. God has already spoken hope into our story. But at the same time, we are not yet there. God has already said that there will be a day when, when sin will be separated from you, where sin dies. But every morning when we wake up, we are acutely aware that sin is still prominent in our lives. And so we live in this conflict. This is the, this is the, this is the bulk of the story that you and I are so, so very familiar, familiar with. We become followers of the path of our tempter. And so we pick up in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul says to the Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul is writing to believers in Ephesus. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And to these believers, to, the, to, to those who have embraced the gospel, to those whose lives have been changed, he is saying these things to them. You walked like all other men walked. We've all got it. We all, we all have the struggle. None of us escapes from it. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are by the, by the world's standards. The, the, the scriptures tell us that the Lord roams to the earth looking for one righteous man, and there's not, there's not one. There's not one single righteous person. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he's saying this to believers to tell them their story. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You weren't weakened, you weren't wounded, you weren't led slightly off course, you were dead. That's the consequence of sin. The mortality rate of humanity is right at 100%. And it begins in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so this is the story that we wade into. You were dead because of your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Following the pattern of this world, following the tempter, the prince of the power of the air, following the one that has led us astray and has been leading us astray since the garden. If we jumped into Romans 4 and 5, we would watch Paul trace the line of, uh, and curse of Adam's sin through the, through the generations of man and leave us to a place of how does this change? How can we fix this? How can we get out of this? There has to be an off-ramp. There has to be like one of those secret passageways that we can just sort of opt out of. There has to be, you know, there has to be that thing. You know, there's, there's got to be that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that thing they're going to 
right into the movie, right toward the end, where the, he the hero starts, you know, suddenly figures it out and overthrows the bad guy or whatever. No. He can't change it. We're powerless to change it. So I guess in kind of a crazy way, that's a little bit of an encouragement, right? I've been trying to stop sinning, and I can't. You're not the only one. None of us can. There's no exit out of this room. There's no stop where we get off of this train on our own. Because we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. All of us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and have become children of wrath. You know, one of my favorite things about Paul and Paul's writings is how honest and how aware he is of his spiritual condi condition. straight out love the book of Romans. And uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul begins to, uh, to uh, almost write a confessional about his spiritual journey. And the last little paragraph of it, I think, is really important for us to get. That this, this, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament that was the original church planner that launched movements and made, helped make the church international under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, writes this about himself in Romans chapter 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Congratulations, you're not alone. You are not the only person this is true for. That when my will wants to do right, my flesh is weak and wants to do wrong. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then we get this point of exasperation for Paul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Where do I get off? I've made lots of mistakes in my life. Um, and you learn from, you learn from those things. One, one of the most notable mistakes I've ever made and learn from is that um, I do not do well on amusement park rides that go backwards at high speed. Lesson learned. But you know, you, you, you usually learn that lesson pretty, on, pretty early on in the ride, right? It's like, hey, we're going forward. Uh, I don't like this. Hey, hey, push the button. Push the button. No, no, the red one. Push the red one. I want off. I want off now. They don't care. My wife swears to me that when she was, when she was a little girl, she went to an amusement park, and, uh, and, and one of the rides that she also learned this lesson on, they actually let it run longer. You know, because it's like, she's like, I want to get off. No, nope, keep running it. Keep running it, you know. Um, you can't get off just because you, you figure these things out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? There's no off. And so you get to a point of, why am I reading the story? 
Why do I keep reading this story if I can't get off? Why do I keep reading the story if I'm stuck in the conflict? If I can't change it, why am I still engaged in this? Because Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't end at verse 3. As a matter of fact, I would actually submit to you that the first two words of verse 4 may be the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Because what happens is that when we are powerless to change our narrative, you know, if we just sort of entertain the idea that we as God's image bearers are the main characters in this story, and we can't change our story, the author himself steps down into our story to change it for us. Verse 4. But God. But God. Do you get that? But God. You can't do it. You can't get out. You can't stop it. You've watched human history long enough to see the cycles of we can't stop sinning. We can't stop being broken. Because sin isn't stuff we do. Sin is what we become. Do you know that? Lots of times when you talk to people about sin, they'll make in their head, they'll make these lists of things that they've done. The things that you've done are not the problem. The heart that birthed the things that you've done is the problem. Sin is a nature thing, a heart thing, not a deeds thing. And I can try and behavior modify enough to where I can stop some of the sin things that I do, but the heart that produces that, I can't. I can't do it. But God can. But God did. And he stepped into our story. And Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, because we were awesome. Right? Of course God loves me. I'm fantastic. He probably likes Tombstone too. That's not what the Bible says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were broken, even when we were sinful, even when we were the exact opposite of his character, even when we were unrepentant, he pursued us, he called us, he spoke our name into the recesses of our heart that we can't identify, that we don't see in medical scans. There is a spiritual component of your heart that only God has a voice that can reach. And because of who he is, and because of how he loves, not because of who we are and how we act, did he step into the story for us. 
but God, because of his mercy and because of his love, even when we were unlovable and content to be that way, made us alive together with Christ. Now, I'm going to speed up here because I get really excited about this part. When we were dead, he made us alive. When we were sin, he made us righteous. When we were broken, he made us whole. When we were isolated, he made us his. Because only he could. Um, and this has to ha- this only happens. This can't only happen. This is what I, 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 would, I would just pound the desk on when, I, when I'm teaching world religions. Only Christianity, only Christianity understands salvation is something that God does instead of something that we earn. How exhausting to be in a belief system where you have to try and earn. Because we'll just say, just like Paul, even when I want to do good, I find that evil is right at my sleeve. And so Christ stepped in. So let me give you this graphic. Look, I I worked hard on this. This is the... This is the pinnacle of theological rendering. Go. Bam! That's right. Educated. Let me tell you what this is. All right, so up in the left-hand corner, theta. Theta is the first word for the Greek word for God. I'm not going to draw God. We've never seen him. Pointless. For, you, can't, you can't. You can't. You can't. All right. So that's God. All right. See the big thick blue arrow. That's wrath. That's wrath for our sin. And it's coming down here for us. That's what we're owed. Because we were all sons of disobedience. We were all children of wrath. This is what we are owed. There will be no one on the final judgment day that stands before God and says, no, that's not fair. That's not right. When he announces our sin and the punishment that comes with it, we'll have no choice but to agree. This is what we are owed. And that's what we were set for. Until Jesus, that's the cross, you guys, you guys, Good, good on that. Okay, all right. So, Jesus, Adam used this word last week, and I was so excited. It's like one of my favorite words. Interposed himself, positioned himself directly between God and me. Because God is just, sin cannot be unjudged, and God remain just. It's against his character. Sin must be judged. Wrath must be satisfied. And so God sets himself, book of Romans, as a propitiation for us. A propitiation is a sacrifice that absolves wrath. It satisfies wrath. And Romans tells us that Christ put himself as, or, as a propitiation for us, an offering that would absorb the wrath of God. Well, how, how does God punishing someone who is innocent, pouring his wrath on someone who is innocent, 
help me. This arrow coming down from the cross to me, right? That's his righteousness. The one coming back up to me to the cross is my sinfulness. This is the doctrine of imputation. To impute to someone means to confer on them. And so what happens on the cross, you read this in the Gospels, it's beautiful, is that when, when the sky turns gray and the book of Matthew earthquakes and graves open and people walk out, when, when, when all of that begins to happen while Jesus is on the cross, nature is saying, this isn't right. Because Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin, my sin, your sin, all of sin, became sin for us so that we who have no righteousness might become the righteousness of God. And when he became sin for us, the wrath of God was poured out on the sin of man. But because he had become sin, the sin of man was on the Son of God. And I am saved. And at the conclusion of that, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus didn't just die for the sin things, the deeds, right? He didn't just offer himself as a sacrifice for the deeds, the sinful deeds that you had before you got saved. And after that, it's up to you. He died for sin. He died for sinfulness. He is remaking your nature. And so when we jump back into Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to finish this up real quick. He raised us up with him, beginning in verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, in case you missed that the first time, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. He's got you in his hands. And he's reforming you to to reflect his image the way you should have all the time. He's taking away the dross. He's taking away the malformity. He's taking away all the things that sin has done to you and to me. He's changing it. Redemption isn't just saying, hey, sin's okay, no problem. You're in. That's not redemption. Redemption is renewing. It's restoring. It's making you whole, and it's making you what you should have been the whole time. It's saying that this human narrative that we've had since the beginning, that we see cyclical over and over and over again, played out in human history, is done. You have a new story. For we are his workmanship, created not in our efforts, created not in our own doing, but created in Christ Jesus for good works, to carry the gospel. We aren't saved because we do good works. We do good works because we've been saved. And you've been renewed. And your story is different. This is the gospel that we preach. It's not an easy gospel. 
But what he had to do, what Christ did for us to accomplish salvation was not easy. Easy doesn't satisfy the wrath of sin. Easy doesn't, doesn't bridge the distance between us and God. But it is perfectly appropriate and effective to restore us to what we should have been all along. So let me ask you this. What cyclical patterns do you have in your narrative? That you see play out over and over and over again. What storylines do you see happen over and again that constantly lead you to a place of frustration, guilt, hurt, disappointment, unfulfillment? What in your story do you need to let God restore, renew, and redeem? This is the gospel we preach, and it's the gospel that he preaches to you. And the recesses of your heart that is spiritual, not physical, that only he can speak into So look, I'm just going to tell you, if, if, if you hear this gospel and you understand what he's done for you and what he had to do for you because we couldn't do for ourselves, and if there's something in the recesses of that heart that is uneasy, that is, that is, uh, that is burdened, that is uh, something that you want me to just stop talking so you can walk out of the room and not have to think about it anymore, that's not me doing that to you. That's him doing it for you. Don't resist it. Lean into the grace that he's pouring into your life. Lean into the call that he has placed on you to be made new in him as you were meant to be all along. Let's pray together as the band. Jesus, we are so thankful. And even that sounds too shallow a word for the work that you did on the cross for us. Not to make us better versions of ourselves, but to make us different, to make us new, to bring renewal and hope, to bring life into dead places, to bring streams into deserts. And to bring hope into hopeless areas. Speak life to us today. Let us walk in the ways that you meant us to walk in. Let us fall into the embrace that you've meant us to experience from the days you've created us. Call us by name, Holy Spirit. Speak to us personally. And lead us into life everlasting.